This morning, we're starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. It's called Reality Check. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'm reading out of the pew Bibles that are available there. They're the, the black hardcover Bibles, and you'll find the passage on page 850. And if you aren't reading one of these, I'm sure you can find one in the table of context, contents at the beginning of your Bible. It's been eight weeks since we've been in the book of Mark. So I just want to refresh us from where we left off. The last portion of Mark's gospel tells in detail the final week of Jesus' life. The final week that began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then the next day he cleanses the temple to the irritation and dismay of the chief priests and scribes in Jerusalem. And then he, for the next few days, teaches these things that only more and more raises support for Jesus in some hearts and malicious antagonism in other hearts. These events of Jesus' last week on earth will come to a climax on the day of Passover when Jesus dies on the cross. Now, the series that we're starting covers all of chapter 14, and again, it's called Reality Check, reorienting our lives around Jesus. The heart and idea behind this sermon series is that in Mark 14, if we don't fully understand who Jesus is, what he is, and what he is doing, it can appear as if he is in deep, deep trouble. The people who are in charge of the religious elite are turning on Jesus and deciding to kill him. Jesus' friends will betray him. He will be delivered over to eventually be executed by Gentiles. Now that could looks so dramatic and dangerous, and indeed it is, but that's not all that is there. There is a deeper reality that, that God is in control, and by Jesus's demeanor, we see that there's something of eternal value happening in Mark chapter 14. And in a similar way, in our lives, we can get so caught up in the details and the things that are visible around us that we end up being lulled into a dreamlike state because of the quote-unquote, real things we see. And if we fail to have a reality check, if we fail to center our lives on the eternal truth, namely Jesus' eternal truth, then we live a fantasy, and it's a total waste. So this morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, and I hope you're there. If, if not, feel free to take your time to turn there. Now, this passage is structured kind of strangely. It's, it's kind of like one of those movies that begins with an action scene, and the main character is in deep danger, and then there's like a freeze frame, and then there's usually like a narration from that character going, yeah, this is me, and boy, am I in trouble. But how did I get here? Let me tell you. And then the movie starts. Have you ever seen one of those movies? Yeah, and, it, and you know, they, they use this a lot in heist movies. And, and that's what I really wanted to, to talk about today. There's a lot of times a heist movie where 
where the thief, who's the protagonist of the movie, seems to be caught. And he's in handcuffs. Or, or he's in a dangerous leap and it freeze frames midair. And then when the movie unfolds from beginning to end, by the time you catch up to that point, you realize that what you saw in the beginning is not actually what it appeared to be, but the person arresting our hero, the thief, is actually his associate, and it's all just a clever ruse, and they're going to get away with it. Or that, that terrifying leap is actually just a daring escape. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 are a little bit like that. There's a story that Mark is telling, but then he freeze frames it. He interrupts it and brings in a story that effectively says, now let me tell you what's really going on here. And I'll show you where that breaks apart. But first, let me go ahead and just read the passage. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at, at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. So we start chapter 14 with a timestamp. Remember, Mark is chronicling the last week of Jesus' life. So periodically, Mark will chime in and say, hey, uh, this is now two days until the Passover, or two days left before Jesus dies. And two days before Jesus dies, the chief priests and the scribes, they have this conversation. They decide that they want to secretly arrest and kill Jesus. That discussion in verses 1 and 2, could easily skip over this story of the anointing in Bethany and go straight to verse 10. It could go straight from, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, let there be an, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad. It could skip right straight to there. It continues this thought. In fact, Luke's account of this story does that very thing. Indulge me for a second while I read you Luke's account, and you'll see how he skips over the anointing in Bethany. This is Luke 22, verses 1 through 5. Now the festival of, of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how they might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. 
that's kind of a summary of Mark's chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, straight into 10 and 11. Luke, who wrote that last version that I just read to you, is mostly interested in telling what he called an orderly account of Jesus's life. And because of that, he's a meticulous physician by trade. So he's trying to tell the story as accurately as possible in chronological order. This happened, and this guy was in charge there, and this guy was in charge somewhere else, but just so you know, it was at this time. And then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Luke is very detail-oriented. He's trying to paint the reality in accordance to chronology. Somewhere on the other side of the spectrum, at the far end, would be John's gospel. John organizes his book mostly thematically and doesn't really care a whole lot about chronology. His plan is to tell Jesus' story in such a way that evokes awe and belief in the reader, that they can then worship Jesus as the Messiah. That's on one end of the spectrum, ordered by theme. The other end of the spectrum, Luke, ordered by chronology. Mark's somewhere in the middle. Mark's somewhere in the middle. He's interested in doing what he called the, telling the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His plan Mark's plan, the gospel that we're reading today, his plan is to introduce the readers to the ascension of a glorious new king. Now, gospel is a word that we today synonymize with churchy things, but gospel at Mark's time was a governmental, political decree. It was a proclamation, hey, this guy's in charge now, and he's awesome, and he's in charge from here to here to here to here to here. Mark's doing that about Jesus. So because that's his goal, he doesn't care a whole lot about chronology. He just wants to reveal who this glorious king is. So I tell you all of that because in chapter 14, Mark takes a chronological detour. He starts in verses 1 and 2 and says, this happened two days before the Passover, and it does. But then he tells the story of the anointing in Bethany, and this is the freeze frame. But let me tell you what really happened. The anointing of Bethany, according to John, who, again, is not always in chronological order, but he tells us in his book where this happens. The anointing in Bethany takes place six days before the Passover. So Mark is interrupting his own story to tell a story that happened four days prior. But, but why is he doing that? It's, it's the heist movie scenario. He's freezing the frame to say, hey, if you miss out on who Jesus actually is and what is actually going on here, you may mistake Jesus for a dupe. That he's about to be tricked by these people who are stra- stronger than him and smarter than him. And he's about to be fooled by somebody that he trusts. Mark says, let me tell you something that happened even days before this happened. Before we get to the anointing, let's break down what happens in verse 1 and 2. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, these are two different feasts. And if you're interested in reading about them, you could read about them in Leviticus 23. The chief priests and scribes have been planning since Jesus cleansed the temple on the Monday of that week. On the Monday of that week to, quote-unquote, destroy Jesus. They want to kill him. But at this point, two days before the Passover, they found out a way to do that. They're going to arrest him and uh, submit him to legal execution. That's their plan. But they have a caveat. 
They want to do it in secret, and they don't want to do it during the feast because they feared an uproar. Now, this feast, the Passover, had people from all over the world, the Jewish dispersion, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this one of their most holy days. Now, Jesus had followers in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was now also packed full of Jesus' followers from Bethany and Bethphage, from the Galilee. These people from all around are here in this city, and they've just shown that week that they think that Jesus is the Messiah. If there was ever a time that could turn into a raucous outcry, it would be during the feast. So the church, excuse me, the chief priests and the scribes want to avoid that at all costs. Now, spoiler alert, they fail to do that. Jesus ends up being executed on the Passover day. In fact, on the very hour that houses who are celebrating the Passover would be slaying their Passover lamb. Now, that's, that's getting thick into some theology. Let me break it down for you in, in just this saying. The church, excuse me, the chief priests and the scribes didn't want Jesus to be killed during the Feast of Passover, but God did. You see, the Passover was a holiday that celebrated when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and God was sending his wrath upon Egypt. Now, the Israelites who lived there had the option to slay a lamb, and that that lamb would be the bearer of the judgment that God was bringing over Egypt, and so his wrath would pass over them. Every year they celebrated this. They would remember that they are free now, that God protected them, that there was a a substitute that paid the price for their judgment. And God wanted Jesus to die on that day to say, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. In the same way that historically the Israelites uh, were freed of God's wrath and judgment because a lamb was slain, so the whole entire world can be freed from the judgment of their sin because Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, would die on that very day, on that very hour. The chief priests and the scribes didn't want that to happen, but God saw to it that it would. Who's really in charge? I would say that God is. So let's talk about this detour, this anointing at Bethany. Next, Mark inserts the story because This is the one that says, let me show you what's really happening here. Jesus is not the dupe. Jesus is not the weak fool. But rather, Jesus is regal. He's the majestic king. And the death that he will end up having on Passover, the death that he will die, is something that not only did he foresee, but he willingly went to by his desire. Let's delve into that detour. Starting verse 3, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, Jesus was visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, but he wasn't staying in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was all packed out because people all over the world were celebrating the Passover there. Jesus, rather, was for the whole week staying in a city called Bethany. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem. That's about a 45-minute walk. So every day he goes into Jerusalem, he does his thing, upsets a bunch of people, encourages a bunch of other people, goes back home to Bethany where he's staying, and he's staying at the house of someone named Simon the leper. We don't really know who that is. 
Some people think that he may be Mary and Martha and Lazarus's dad, but we genuinely don't know, so we'll just skip over that. Jesus was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. He was reclining at the table. Now, that's a cultural reference. Don't think of Jesus as like kicking back super cash. He's not in a bathrobe just chilling out. It's, it's just that's the way they ate dinner. It was a low table. They would eat on cushions, so they're just around the table. And this woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment. So I just want you to get the picture of this. It doesn't matter a whole lot, but the alabaster flask, it would have been their culture's common vessel for fine perfume. It was... Uh, a white, marbly, stone kind of vase. It would be round at the bottom and it would taper upward and have a long, tall neck. And it was pure nard. So nard, or spikenard, or spikenard, is, is a, an oil that comes from a plant that's not local to Bethany. It's, at this time, they would have gotten that from India. It's a, it's a foreign import. And uh, the plants, the spikenard plants, produce a very minuscule amount of oil, but that oil smells incredible. But because it, that scent is so rare, and because it's a foreign import, it was very, very costly. Now, the, the smell of nard is incredible. It's kind of like a tea tree oil thing. You know, it, it's, it's sappy, but also like cool and cold. It's got a mint smell. Actually, wish I would have gotten some. That would have been cool, and then I could have shown you guys. Wait! I did, y'all. So, um, if you guys are interested in smelling what it smells like, you can hang out with me afterwards. I'll be the weird guy sniffing a vial. <laughs> to, be, to be entirely honest, uh, the first smell is intense and not that good. But if you'll, if you'll smell it a second time, it's so good. And I've, I've, this is not the first time I've left the house with it in my pocket. Um, it's... It's an aromatherapy sort of thing. It's, it's super, super relaxing. And it really just, it's got a beautiful scent to it. Anyway, so she comes with this flask, and she breaks the bottle and pours it on Jesus' head. Now, you might be wondering, what is that about? Why did she break the bottle? Why did she pour it on his head? Is this some form of assault? Like, what is going on here? Well, some people have said that she breaks the bottle because it's a sign of wholehearted commitment to what she's about to do. She's expressing total abandonment. This thing that is extremely valuable, there's no going back. She's using it for this purpose and reserving none of it for anybody else, not even for herself. So she breaks the bottle. That might be. That may be why she does it. But something also very interesting in Black's New Testament commentary, the gospel according to St. Mark, the writer, his name is Morna D. Hooker, says, Ointment jars used for anointing the dead were often broken and left in the tomb. Now, in a bit, as we read earlier, Jesus is going to say what she did was like preparing his body for burial, like anointing his body for burial. And even the way that she opened this bottle ended up fitting that symbolism. Now, did she know that? Maybe, maybe not. But the Holy Spirit has seen to it to have Mark included in here because it evokes imagery that surrounds Jesus' death, which is an important part of his gospel. Now, she, 
also pours it on his head. Why would she do that? Well, in Jesus' age, it was a time where there, was, there wasn't the daily luxury of bathing, um, so a common hygienic practice would be to anoint yourself with oil. It means to rub ointment on yourself, and it would be fine-scented, so that way you didn't smell so yucky. And when you had guests come to your home, it was considered an honorable hospitality to anoint them, to, to give them a fine scent, so that way they would smell nice when they're in your home. However, what has happened here is not your garden variety, everyday hygienic practice. It's also not your garden variety, everyday honorable hospitality. This flask, broken for Jesus, was the most lavish, costly ointment that could have been used, and she used all of it. Anointings like this evoke royal anointings. When a king would ascend to the throne, one of the ceremonial practices is, would be that oil would be poured on them, and it would be a sign of God's power coming over them and that they're being recognized as, uh, as God's authority here on earth. Um, in 1 Samuel, this happens a couple of times, 1 Samuel 10.1, Samuel is said to have taken a flask of oil. He pours it on Saul's head, who would be the next king. He kisses him and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? In 1 Samuel 16, God shows David to Samuel, and he says, this is the one, anoint his head, meaning this is going to be my next king. You anoint him. And so Samuel pours a horn of oil on David's head. This thing that happens to Jesus the let me tell you what's really happening here, this is Jesus' royal anointing. In fact, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word that means anointed. What, what happened to David in that story, what happened to Saul in that story, is a word that is the, from which we get the word Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one. This is a picture of Jesus being who Mark said he was, who he was. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus is anointed with this extremely precious ointment, it serves as a profound symbol of his installation as a highly exalted king. Perhaps the woman meant this simply as a gift offering to Jesus, one of high value, but Mark places it here to say, no, 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 this is not the dupe. This is the high king, the one worthy of such a lavish anointing. Now, verses four and five, follow along with me. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So there's this beautiful gesture. This woman comes and does something wonderful to Jesus, but of course somebody has to come around and ruin it. They start to complain that it was a waste of a highly valuable commodity. This is the part where a lot of times preachers say, sidebar, anything given to Jesus cannot be a waste. I couldn't fit that in, but that's actually a good point, so we'll put it on a bumper sticker. Uh, if you're familiar enough with John's telling of the anointing of Bethany, and you may or may not be, it doesn't matter. John's story of the anointing at Bethany, John is not shy to say that the person who says this could have been sold for 300 denarii 
was Judas Iscariot, who would also betray Jesus. And Judas said that not because he cared about the poor, this is John's words, but because he was in charge of the money bag. So if they had a massive offering that they were going to give to the poor, he would help himself to a larger quantity. But don't let your mind go to that Judas place yet. We're reading Mark's gospel. And what Mark tells us here is that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this wasted? There there were a few people there who thought that this thing that this woman did was wasteful. And maybe Judas is the one who next says, we could have sold this for 300 denarii, but he was not the only one who thought this was a waste. This looked like a waste. Well, really quickly, let's see what that 300 denarii actually means. If the estimation of the person who said that, who probably Judas, was correct, uh, in today's numbers, Seattle's minimum wage of 1639, uh, in a day's work, uh, the, the person who gets minimum wage would make 131.12. And that's what a denarius was, one day's wage. You go out and you do a day's work, you get one denarius to pay for that day's work you did. You come back the next day, you get a second denarius. It's one day's pay. So in our culture, a denarius would be $131.12. 300 denarii in today's wages equates to $39,336. It's a lot of money. And what this person said is that it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. It's the better part of a year's wages. This is what this woman used to anoint Jesus, this royal anointing. So they said that all of that money could have been collected and we could have given it to the poor. And when Judas said that, I'm sure Jesus knew that Judas was, was stealing. But that's not what Jesus addresses. He goes to something much more profound. Rather than ousting somebody who's saying something rotten, he goes straight to defend this woman. This is is verses 6 and 7. And listen to how personal this is. Leave her alone. He's not talking about the things that they just said. He's not talking topically. He's talking personally. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus quickly comes to her defense, and he makes it personal. He says that she's done a beautiful thing to me. I want to pick apart that phrase, because what is translated there, a beautiful thing to me, is what is commonly translated in the ESV as good work. They're criticizing her because she could have done a better work with that money, given it to charity, but Jesus says, no, she has done a good work, and she's done a good work to me. What she has done there is something that Jesus is now upholding. Now, He's going to define what the good work is in just a minute. But first he says, hey, look, you're talking about giving money to the poor. The poor you're always going to have here. But me you don't always have. Now, he's not just being cavalier about poverty. Right there when he says the poor you will always have with you, he's referring to Deuteronomy 15.11. He's citing it or reciting a portion of it. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. He isn't, says who, he isn't saying who cares about the poor. 
He's saying, yeah, you're right. There's poor with you, so you should always give to them. He may be kind of throwing their criticism back at them, saying, why are you judging her? Are you always giving to the poor as your law requires you to? This law is saying that there should always be resources always available because there's always going to be poor people who need them. And Jesus is referring to that, and he's saying, yeah, you're right. There's always poor people. But there's only one time when I'm going to be here on earth like this. It's consistent in Jesus's time on earth that he always prioritizes celebrating with him over acts of piety or religiosity or, or even acts of devotion like fasting. He's saying, no, no, just, just enjoy your time with me. There's a time where he's over at Mary and Martha's house and Martha is working really hard to make him food, which is a nice thing to do. And Mary's just sitting with him. And he commends Mary for just being with him over Martha, who's laboring for him. In Jesus' presence, he's always preferring the personal relation to him to the, whatever appears to be most, most religious and most pious. All right, so verse 8, he's going to name what she did. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She's done what she could, i.e. she's done her part. She's played her role. And then he says, she's anointed my body beforehand to burial. It was customary in Jesus's culture to bury a body with oils and spices. It was their version of embalming, okay? And this was, uh, Jesus says that what this woman, this woman did was that for him. It wasn't just his anointing that, that made him the king, but because Jesus's kingship is directly tied to his death. His kingship is directly tied to his death. And she's, he says, she has given me my embalming ahead of time. Verse 9, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I want to point to something fascinating here. Jesus credits this woman for doing something special for him that is unique to her. He says that she has anointed my body for burial beforehand. Now, what she does there is eternally hers. No one will ever take that role from her. Turn with me, if you can, to Mark 15, 46. Uh, at this point in, in Mark chapter 15, verse 46, Jesus has already died, okay? And he's died on the cross, and this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, whom we'll get to in April, so we can't talk about him today, asked for Jesus' body. Verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now notice what is missing there in Mark's account. No mention of an embalming. No mention of an anointing. He was wrapped in linen. Mark portrays this story of Jesus being buried as being really hasty. We had to do this quick. It's a quick job because the Sabbath is coming and we're not allowed to be dealing with dead people. It's going to make us unclean for the Passover ceremony. So, so Mark talks about like he was wrapped in linen quickly. No mention of anointing. But keep reading into chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, so now it's clear, now they're, they're able to go handle Jesus' body and become ceremonially unclean. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
So a couple days prior, they watched where Jesus was buried, and now they've brought the equipment to embalm him, to anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from, uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. By the time that they get there, Jesus has already resurrected. The angel has already moved the stone and Jesus has already exited the tomb. They're holding all of this equipment, preparing to anoint Jesus' body. They don't get the chance to do that because he's not dead anymore. So who gets the credit for having embalmed Jesus' body for burial? This woman, several days beforehand, this thing that she did for Jesus is eternally hers. Now, full disclosure, John says in his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did wrap Jesus in, in spiced and anointed linens. But what I'm contending with you today is this. Jesus sanctioned this woman's embalming, not what they did several days later. He gives her work the recognition of the preparation of his body for burial, not what happened several days later. And so Mark doesn't even include it in his gospel because Jesus' words are the ones that define what is really important to the story, not the things that happen around him. Reality check. Let me show you what's really going on here. Now, after Jesus has commended her and he says that wherever the gospel is, is told, this story is going to be told as a memorial for her. We're doing that today, over 2,000 years later. Then we get back on track. The detour is over. We're back at the freeze frame again. And we return to the plot of Jesus' betrayal. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And they sought an opportunity, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. We started this chapter with chief priests and scribes wanting to arrest Jesus and have him executed. Mark does the freeze frame, but then we come right back to that story. Their plan is continuing according to every, every plan that they have. They've got a man on the inside who will get Jesus alone, who will get them to the place where they can have an advantage over Jesus, arrest him, and then have him executed. But we spent this entire time in these first verses talking about what's really going on here. We can't afford to think of Jesus as the dupe, as the one who's been fooled by this really brilliant plan. Instead, we see that Jesus knows that he's going to die. This is no surprise to him. Instead, we see that Jesus is the exalted king, anointed lavishly and luxuriously in Bethany several days prior. We also see that Jesus' very death is... A, an important part of his gospel, of his ascension to the throne. You, you might say that that's one of the steps that he must take in order to ascend to, to the throne. Before we go any further, you might be wondering why Judas would betray Jesus. Um, 
and I think people people have been arguing that for a very long time, and a lot of people have a lot of interesting ideas that are that are not biblical. A lot of people say that, well, uh, he was mad at Jesus because Jesus didn't bring the revolution that he expected. Maybe that's not what the Bible says. Some people let Judas off the hook a little bit and say, well, he didn't think that Jesus would actually die on the cross. He was trying to create an insurgence, and he wanted the uproar that the chief priests and scribes didn't want, so that way Jesus could then be put onto the throne. The Bible doesn't say that. Probably not the case. What we see in Scripture is that Judas lived a life of deceitfulness, and he stole from Jesus' ministry. We know that he made it a regular practice of his to value money over Jesus. It was only a matter of time before that became a literal transaction, trading Jesus for money. Luke says that the devil enters into Judas before he approaches these chief priests and scribes. But I think that it, it must be that the life that Judas had already lived to this point made him an easy target for Satan, made him an easy access point for Satan. Because what Satan was going to do through Judas was effectively what Judas was already doing on a regular basis on his own. It's super easy for us to read the story, or rather, let me not put it on you. You can be the best judge for yourself. It's super easy for me to judge the villains of this drama. Chief priests, bad. Scribes, bad. Judas, bad. And I would like to think that I'm most like the woman who gave Jesus this anointing. I would like to think that if I were in that position, that I would give everything that I have to Jesus and I wouldn't be afraid. However, that's not the point of this passage for us to feel better about ourselves. This passage is about Jesus' gospel, his ascension to the throne, the proclamation of this is the high exalted king who is now in charge. This story has everything to do with who Jesus is, what Jesus is, and what should be done with him. See, the scribes and the chief priests, they thought Jesus was simply a nuisance. That's what they thought he was. And so what should they do with him? Get him out of the way. Kill him. They were wrong. Judas thought Jesus was, he probably thought Jesus was just a means towards self-promotion. So what should he do with him? I don't know. Sell him? Get a little money out of him after all. Judas was wrong. But here's the thing. If we, if we think that this is a story simply about who we should be like and who we shouldn't be like, then we miss the irony here. This woman thought Jesus was worthy of her gift to him. And so she gave it to him, and she was right. However, like, this church, like the chief priests and scribes, like Judas, she didn't have the full picture. She had no idea that the things that she was doing would evoke this imagery that would, that would be Mark's tools to signify Jesus as the exalted king, anointed luxuriously. She didn't know, maybe, that the way that she opened her vase would be evoking an image of, this is like the embalming of a dead man, a broken vase of ointment. She didn't know that Jesus would say, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. 
Maybe she didn't know that Jesus was going to say, what this woman did, I'm going to make sure that it's in my gospel for all of the ages. I think she probably didn't know that he was going to say that. The point of the story is not who we should be like and who we shouldn't be like. The point of the story is to show you what's really going on here. What's really going on here is that there's one party that's in full control of this entire situation, despite all of the things going on around. It's God. God saw to it that Jesus would be killed on Passover, even though the people who were trying to kill Jesus didn't want that to happen. God did, because it had symbolic value. It had biblical value. So God made sure that it happened. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he was being anointed for burial. And he wouldn't let these people who were criticizing this woman, he wouldn't let them criticize her because what she did was of value to him. It had biblical, symbolic significance. And Jesus made a point to make sure that that was clarified. He was in control of that situation. He would not let the people grumbling to themselves define what happened in that situation. Jesus was in control of that. And the Holy Spirit was in control of collecting all of these details that when organized the way that Mark did, evoke images of a high exalted king, lavishly anointed, and yet somehow still related to something gruesome and somber and grievous, something related to death. Who's really in control? Freeze frame, let me show you what's really going on here. God is the translator. So what do we do with that? Because I, I think that a, a level of truth in the, in the way that we read this, this story and, and have to muscle through the details in order to understand what's really going on, I think that that describes the life that we live. We don't always know the full story of what's going on. The scary thing about that is when we fall into sin, we have no idea the cost that that sin is going to create for us. And the beauty is, is when we serve Jesus, we have no idea how he's going to signify that act and what he's going to do with it. We don't know the cost and value, but we do know where we're heaping up consequence. Galatians 6, 8 says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Is that not what we saw happened here in this passage? These, these chief priests and scribes, they're sowing to their flesh. All they care about is their own preeminence. There's this nobody preacher who's coming in and who's wiping away their authority, and they're upset by that. They're offended by that because their flesh wants to remain in authority and preeminence. And that sowing to the flesh leads to their corruption. They end up seeing to it that the Messiah that they should have worshipped, the Messiah that was going to save them, they see to it that he's killed. What about Judas sowing to his flesh? He thinks, if I can get my hands on a little bit of money, that'll be better for me. And so he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is a meager price. According to Jewish law, that is less than a human slave is worth. And when Judas dis does this, he eventually regrets it so badly that he commits suicide because of it. Matthew 27. He sowed to his flesh. He reaped corruption. 
But this woman, who may have not known the full significance of the things that she was doing, she sowed to the Spirit. What does that mean? That means if you know the things that please God, you do those things because you recognize that it feeds you for who you are. The things that please God feed us for who we are because that's the God who created us. And the things that God calls good are also the things that are to our benefit and to our human flourishing. This woman knew that this priceless bottle of ointment she had would be more beneficial poured out upon Jesus for her than if she kept it for herself. So she sowed to the Spirit, and what she reaped from that was eternal in value. Everywhere the gospel is shared, her story will be told. The thing that she did was pivotal to Jesus' proclamation as king in Mark's words. Her, Her gift to Jesus was the only embalming that was recognized in Jesus' very, very gospel-significant death. She ripped eternal life from sowing to the Spirit. Now, for us, we're faced with decisions like that every single day. If, if you're a Christian today, then maybe you can relate to some of the things that I've experienced that I'm faced with a temptation that's enticing to me, and I recognize that it breaks my God's heart, and I fall into it, and I do it. Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What have I sold him for? Even days as a Christian, I've sold him for social status, for one more episode, for one more piece of food, for a lie for an adulterous thought or look. And, I, and I, I have no idea how much that affects me. I don't know what that's going to reap for me. And I, and I pray for repentance and I ask Jesus to remove the consequence from me and to please forgive me. And he does. He's so faithful. But the beauty of it is this. When I have the privilege by God's grace, not by my own efforts, but by God's grace, to serve Jesus faithfully, I create a gift for Jesus, and I give it to him, and he gets to choose what's the significance of that gift. And maybe, maybe like this woman, this, this, these things that we do, uh, these, these times where we, where we resist temptation or these times where we do good works, which is appropriate, we do good works. Maybe when we do good works, Jesus upholds that work and says, no, for eternity, this will always be eternally accredited to my daughter, to my son, and this is a pivotal part of my gospel. Do you know that the gospel is still being completed today? The works that Jesus has afforded on the cross includes the things going on in our lives today. And in eternity, when we're rejoicing for Jesus' ultimate victory, it's not going to be just for the salvation of sinners. That's the beginning. It's going to be for the time that Matt told the truth. And people in heaven will worship Jesus because his cross afforded that time that Matt told the truth. And all the good works that you guys do, it has eternal significance. So what I think that we are privileged to hold today from this passage is to understand that we make choices every single day that have wakes 
in our lives, and we have no clue what the full significance of them are. We don't know the full gravity and cost for the failures that we make. And we don't know how much Jesus will signify and exalt and value our good works. We can't be perfect, and I'm not asking you to be perfect, because I'm not perfect. But what I'm saying is when we are faced with the choice, keep the bottle, break the bottle. Protect Jesus, betray Jesus, accept Jesus, reject Jesus. Tell a lie, tell the truth. Be honest, be dishonest. Be faithful, have adulterous thoughts, relationships, or looks. When we're faced with those choices, this passage helps to enlighten us to say, I have a reason to do one or the other. Because the significance of what is happening here is in the hands of Jesus. And he will decide what this is worth. And, and I do not know. If you're not a Christian today, it may have crossed your mind that being a stuffy, prudish, boring, religious, churchy person would be a terrible waste of time. Firstly, I would have to say that walking by God's guidance is anything but boring. It's exhilarating to the point of exhaustion sometimes. But, but secondly, I want to say to non-Christians and Christians alike, this reminder, we were created by God, and the things that he wants for us are the very things that lead to our fulfillment, our personal resonance, the things that give us peace. We people are torn up inside constantly. Jesus' ways, his gospel, his peace mends up that brokenness. If we have an opportunity to walk in the Spirit, to sow to the Spirit, it's only because Jesus died on the cross to make that possible for us. But we do have that choice today that is afforded to us today. And if we don't take the route that leads to eternal life, that leads to internal peace, but ultimately leads to a relationship with Jesus Christ, that life is a waste. The life that ends with death is a waste. The life that doesn't enjoy a God who is loving and caring and nurturing and empowering, the life that doesn't grab that opportunity and instead takes measly silver measly sin. That's the real waste. And so, brothers and sisters, I would just encourage us all today to live lives taking a second to freeze frame and say, well, what's really going on here? What is this choice really worth for me? And, and remembering that on one side is whatever substance of our desire that may be, insert blank, whatever is your fancy. But in the other choice is this high, exalted, loving, glorious king who's willing to give everything, even himself, to you. And that relationship is exceeding beauty far beyond anything I could describe. Let's pray. Lord, you're pretty cool. I really enjoy the fact that you know everything 
the, the full consequences. You, you make our lives significant. You wrought from seemingly unrelated scenarios symbolism that displays your glory. And the things we've experienced in our lives do that very same thing. And I would just pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, that you would stir within us those of us who are believers, and that you would speak to those of us who are not believers and awaken within us a desire to, to propagate your gospel, to sow to the Spirit and reap the eternal life that is most highly valued because it comes with a relationship with you. Protect us from sin, Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those things are wasteful, and yet somehow they're so tantalizing to us. Have mercy on us. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm grateful, Lord, that daily, time and time again, you seem to deliver me. And I pray that you would be a faithful deliverer to my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of worship. Uh, communion is available. You can, you can take it on your own. We'll also have... Uh, some people available here for prayer. Um, this is this is our chance to respond to God for the for the goodness of His Word. And I'm kind of goofy, and the things that I said it doesn't matter. But the things that God intends, those are the things that we can respond to with all of our hearts through song, through communion, through prayer. And if you're not a Christian today, please come ask for prayer. You're welcome to come talk to me. Um, there's good things awaiting us. I love you guys.